Greetings once again and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. This week in John 4, 34, Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that it's our pattern each week to study one particular sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, If you want to know more about the reading scheme, we read a sermon a day for those who can. And this week we're reading from 297 to 303 in the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 6. But each week, recognising that seven sermons a week is quite a stretch, we focus on one particular sermon, and it's 302 this week, Jesus About His Father's Business. It was preached at the Exeter Hall on the Strand on the 4th of March, 1860, a Sabbath morning. And as we've said, the text is John 4, 34. If you'd like to follow along, you can find uh, more information at uh, at Reading Spurgeon at Twitter. Too many ats there, but never mind. So go to Twitter, find at Reading Spurgeon, see how that works. Or you can sign up for a regular newsletter at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where we can uh, send you the reading scheme for the week, a copy of the featured sermon and a link to this podcast. I hope that will be of some assistance to some. But for now, let's dive into a sermon that is hissing hot. John chapter 4 and verse 34. Spurgeon begins by telling us that uh, we need to remember that in salvation, the willing son does not make the unwilling father willing, but rather that Christ comes to do his father's bidding. He has come at Christ's com- at God's command. He comes willingly, but still by his father's appointment and sending. It is God's work of salvation, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are together engaged in it. And we're concentrating now upon Christ as the mediator, the God-man, the incarnate Son, who came to do and to finish the work that his Father had given him to do. Our Lord and Master, says Spurgeon, had but one thought, but one wish, but one aim. He concentrated his whole soul, gathered up the vast floods of his mighty powers and sent them in one channel, rushing towards one great end. My meat, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Spurgeon's structure on this occasion is quite unusual for him. He's got nine brief points. Now, Uh, What's interesting, and I suggest that this may be a a good thing for us as preachers to remember, if we're going to have this many sub-points, then it might not be a good idea to tell people in advance, we've got nine and we're on number six or or seven or eight. I have a friend uh, with whom I sometimes joke that we know a man who may be the only person in the world who's ever used the phrase 73rdly in the pulpit. Now, uh, most of us would never get to 73 anyway, but it may be if we're dividing up a sermon like this that to uh, enumerate the different headings would actually put people off. So although Spurgeon's got them probably numbered on his page or on his mind, then uh, nevertheless, he just runs through them, it seems, quite quickly. So there are nine things that show Christ's devotion to his father's work. 
and out of that will come two particular applications. The first thing that shows Christ's entire devotedness to the work of salvation, a devotedness so great that he could say, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. Spurgeon calls our attention first of all to the fact verified by the Gospels that his soul was in all that he did. The task was not irksome to our Lord Jesus Christ. He did it with no coldness of spirit, with no reserve. Wherever he walks, you see his whole self in flame, his whole being at work. Not a single power slumbers, but the whole man is engaged. You can look into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ as it's recorded for us in the Gospels, and you see a man who is taken up with the work, whether he's with the the tax collectors and the sinners, whether he's with the little children, he is entirely in his place, in that place, engaging with those men and women and boys and girls. Look up into that face then, says Spurgeon, and there is a whole-souled man there, not one whose thoughts are set on dignity and power and who is schooling himself down, toning down his mind to the circle in which he moves as a matter of constraint and duty. His vocation becomes his delight. His father's service is his element. He is never happy when he is out of it. He casts his whole being, his whole spirit, into the work of man's redemption. Perhaps it's worth us remembering too that in an age when so many of us are so distracted, when even when we're dealing with people who may have a good call upon our time and our attention and our energy, we're looking at our smartwatches or at our smartphones or we're distracted by some beeping or some music in the background. Christ is a man who is taken up with the work of the moment. He is always engaged with his whole soul in all that he did. Then the second proof of his devotedness. Observe that whatever a man takes to heart as being the object of his life, it always makes him glad when he sees it succeeding. Spurgeon points out that you often see Christ grieving when he is rejected or when he is despised, but when he is among people who are receiving the truth, then there's joy. You generally know when a man's heart is in his work by the joy he feels in it. And that's when you see Christ with his eyes flashing, his lips pouring forth eloquence and his whole soul at ease. By contrast, says Spurgeon, you see some preachers go up into their pulpits as though they were going to be roasted at the stake and they read their sermons through as if they were making their last dying speech and confession. What do you think they call it? Why, doing their duty. True ministers call preaching pleasure, not duty. It is a delight to stand up to tell to others the way of salvation and to magnify Christ. I do remember hearing a man preach at a conference once. Um, the fact that he was Scottish doesn't necessarily mean that this is a Scottish problem, uh, but I can never hear it outside of that Scottish accent, uh, which I won't attempt here, uh, lest I be thought to be mocking. But... Um, this uh, esteemed gentleman stood up and said in something of this kind of voice, well, it's very hard for me to communicate the profound sense of joy that I feel under these circumstances. As I look out into your faces, it gives to me something of the sense of heaven upon earth to be with you 
under these circumstances and in these days. And you felt like shouting, somebody should tell your face and your voice. Now, that was just the introduction. Perhaps you've heard men who, they drag themselves through material that would be glorious if they only realised it for themselves. True ministers call preaching pleasure. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's painful, and Spurgeon will bring out another element of this later on. But the point is that, nevertheless, it is a joy for a true preacher to be called into that particular work. It is a delight for him to be about his father's business in something of the same way that it was for Jesus Christ. So the third test by which you may know a man's spirit is in his work is the righteous anger that he sometimes feels when he's dealing with the the material at its very most intense Our Lord Jesus Christ sometimes grew warm in speech, says Spurgeon, but was never angry except with men who opposed the good work with which he came, and not even with them if he saw that they opposed it through ignorance, but only with those who stood up against him on account of pride and vain glory. You hear people today saying this, that we should never be angry. You almost feel like saying to them, is there really nothing that is significant enough to call forth a measure of righteous indignation. Now, it needs to be righteous, but if we can't get angry in the best sense about wickedness and cruelty and unkindness and disdain and the rejection of the gospel, how can we say that we truly feel what is engaged in the work? The loving spirit of Jesus, notice the distinction, trodden on like a worm who would never defend himself, who had not a spark of resentment towards his persecutors, but when he was reviled, reviled not again, who gave blessings for curses. Oh, says Spurgeon, how he kindles into a flame when he sees enemies in the way of his poor people whom he has come to save. So it's not our provocation that we're not being thought of or dealt with in the way that we think we should be. It is rather that concern that where the gospel goes forth, there ought to be a, a, a way made plain for it. And when there is the offence, the, the death traps and the trip hazards that are put in the way, it is right that a righteous man should be grieved and angered by those who would keep men out of heaven and drag them down to hell. A man's spirit is in his work when he is righteously indignant at those who would keep him from its accomplishment. Then the fourth sure evidence that a man has taken to his heart some mighty purpose and that that purpose has saturated his soul is that if he's unsuccessful, he will weep. Now here's that flip side of the pleasure that a preacher takes in preaching. We grieve when we see that our ministry accomplishes not what we had wished. And so it is with Christ to the ultimate degree. Yes, they can spit and he will not weep. They may try and kill him and he will not sigh. They may nail him to the cross and there may be no tear. But what truly makes the heart of Christ break, what makes him weep, is to see men reject their own mercy, that they put away from them their only hope and refuse to walk in that only way of peace. It is distressing to Christ. Opposing salvation will make Christ angry, not for himself, but on behalf of his people. 
seeing men turn from their sin, from their uh, from the gospel rather, and not turn from their sin, will make Christ weep over those who oppose what is the very blessing that they need. Then there's a fifth thing. Many good and great men have fallen into this snare that they have left their work in order to take care of their own reputation and have at least diminished some little of their ardour or commingled the ardour which they feel for those objects with another fervency of spirit, the fervency of self-defence. But in our Lord Jesus Christ you see nothing of this. Christ is not distracted by the slanders and the slurs that are washing about him. He can deal with them when he needs to, but he's not obsessed about them. There's no complaining, no accusation. He doesn't spend hours and hours responding to these things. Says Spurgeon, Christ has left on record in his sermons no apology for anything he said. He just went about his work and did it, and left men to think what they pleased about him. He knew right well that contempt and shame from some men are but another phase of glory, and that to suffer the despite of a depraved race was to be glorified in the presence of his Father and in the midst of his holy angels. He was too good to be selfish, too glorious to care for anyone's esteem. He could not and would not turn aside, but as an arrow from the bow of some mighty archer, sped on his way toward his destined target. That's only five. A few more to go. Mark again. I should probably, by the way, have followed my own advice and not told you there were nine to come. But never mind. Here we are and we're making progress. Another proof of the full devotedness of Christ to his ministry. You always see him labouring. Spurgeon says, you look at that three years of public service and it reads like the history of three centuries. A man living at a matchless rate, his minutes are all hours, his hours all months, his months all years, or longer still than that. He does enough in one day to give a man eternal fame and yet thinking nothing of it, he goes to something yet more arduous and on and on he toils his whole life through. He seemed to be a sun that never had a setting, always shining, always progressing in his mighty course. Oh, there never was such a worker, never such a toiler as this Lord Jesus, who toiled not for himself, but for others. When a man's heart is in the work, he will be always labouring. And the seventh thing, another proof that it was his food to do the will of him who sent him, was that many times when he was in full labour, he does not seem to have felt fatigue at all. Now, sometimes there is real weariness, and there was in measure in our Lord Jesus Christ. But it was often at those very moments that his spirit was refreshed by the work, not di and not even despite the work. He seemed to get refreshed in his work, to grow stronger amid his toils. Instead of growing tired, he renewed his strength as he went on with his sacred labours. His whole soul was in the work. Spurgeon refers to his own experience, going early in the morning to the chapel, sitting there all day long, hearing the testimonies of people who'd been saved. And it wasn't until ten o'clock when he began to feel a little faint that he realised that he hadn't eaten all day. Why? Because his heart was taken up with the work. And he says, I think we could almost live on without food if God would sustain us daily with this divine manner. And I hope you've known something of that if you're a Christian. It's the, in the toil that you feel the refreshment. You're energised by the effort. 
It's God lifting up your soul and bestowing physical energies that you otherwise might not have had. Then again, if Spurgeon says, I've not said enough to convince you yet that he gave his whole spirit to the work, notice that when a man has espoused a purpose and has betrothed himself to it, yet at last he has been divorced from it, that some men say they will pursue an end and then they give up, but not Christ. Nothing distracted him, not all the blessings, all the privileges, all the pleasures, all the joys that were held out to him apart from the cross. The the temptations of Satan, the uh, desires of the people, the readiness of others to, uh, to follow him. No, he is going to do his work. He has not come to establish a carnal kingdom. He has come to wear the thorn crown, to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows. And from that single object, the most splendid temptation could not make him diverge. Yes, you can heap together the glittering pomps and the gaudy jewels, but he treads them all beneath his feet. The cross to him is brighter than a crown, the suffering more dear than wealth and honour. And then the last of these thoughts. If we knew that some purpose which we had undertaken could never be achieved unless by our death, supposing that we could bring our mind to give up our blood as the price of success, if we knew that after the most toilsome effort, though the walls of the structure might rise, yet our own tomb must furnish the top stone, if we resolved to die for it, Yet I can well conceive, says Spurgeon, that firmly as our purpose might be set, we should dread the hour. We would back away. And yet, drawing especially on the testimony of Mark's gospel, he says, You find in Christ a servant who is in haste to fulfill his mission, even though the grave lies at its end, never loitering, but always doing something straightway, immediately, Christ seems to me to be always stretching out his hands after the cross, not standing back from it as if he knew it must come to him by necessity. And that for a whole lifetime. I can imagine a man panting for the fight an hour before it begins, says the preacher, but all his life long to be desiring to enter into upon it, to be panting for that bloody sweat, to be sighing for those nails, that shame, that spitting... This showed how strongly our Lord Jesus Christ had bent all his thoughts to the divine purpose of doing his Father's will and finishing his Father's work. So much then for the evidences of Christ's devotion to his Father's work. And again, you notice Spurgeon hasn't uh, reiterated the language as he sometimes does. He's blitzed through these things. He's covered nine elements very, very quickly. Uh, he's made sure that the people don't become weary, even though he's covering a lot of territory. His soul was in all that he did. He was delighted when he saw it succeeding. He was angered when he saw people oppose it. He was weeping when he saw people reject it. He was not uh, distracted by assaults upon himself. He was always labouring. He did not feel fatigue when he was taken up with the work. And he has never divorced himself from his ultimate end. And he was willing his whole life long to seek after the death that would be the crown of his finished work. What do we do with that? 
two very brief practical responses from Spurgeon. The first addressed to the timid, agonised soul who desires salvation, but who thinks that Christ is unwilling to give it to him. Timid spirit, timid spirit, put away the thought that Christ is unwilling to save. Look at him, hear him, look into that face, see what he is both willing and able to do. His ability is infinite and so is his willingness. Do not distrust him. Come as you are with all your sins about you. Come now and put your trust in him. See this man who has given himself body and soul to the pursuit of your salvation and do not then for one moment doubt that should you come to him, he would turn you away. Come and welcome. This is the invitation which reaches you today from heaven's festal board, from the the at the table spread with good things. Come and welcome. Come and welcome. Come and welcome, sinner. Come, let nothing make you linger. Christ thirsts to save. He pants to bless. He longs to redeem and ransom. Only trust him. This is the encouragement of the endeavour of Christ. Here is a man who is committed to salvation, and you may come then with confidence to him. And then the other part, Christian men, it is but fair that we should give you one lesson from such a subject as this. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Are we as believers like our Lord in this matter? We have church members, he says, men of wealth. They do not. They spend more upon themselves than upon Christ. May I not infer from this that they love themselves better than Christ? Others are comparatively well-to-do, spend more on their mere pleasures than on Christ. What am I to suppose but that they find more pleasure in the enjoyments of the flesh than they do in serving Christ? We have tens of thousands in the army of the Lord that strike for themselves in their own battles with an arm as strong as that of King Arthur of our fable. But when they come to fight for Christ, their arm drops nerveless at their side. In business, they give themselves. In their pleasures, they pursue without relenting. But what of Jesus Christ? Are you an imitator of him? If you are cold and dull and careless, the likeness is marred and blotted. Oh, says Spurgeon, if our divided aims could but be exchanged for singleness of heart, if our littleness of zeal could be consumed in the intensity of love to Christ, what better men should we be, and what a happier world would be this? Do you imagine that you are pleasing God when you are living for fifty aims instead of one? When you bring to Christ your lukewarm love, your lukewarm zeal, do you think he is pleased with you and that he accepts your offer? Says Spurgeon, the church of Laodicea has taken up its residence in London. Truly might the Lord say to many of our London churches, you are neither hot, cold nor hot, you are lukewarm and I will spew you out of my mouth. There is nothing God abhors more than our cold Christianity such as we have in these modern times, a religion which professes to live but which lives like a gasping, fainting, trembling creature that is on the verge of death. 
And if you think Spurgeon's being a bit hard, a bit harsh in saying that, then consider the character of the man of whom God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It was the man devoted to the cause God had given him, the man committed to accomplishing the salvation that the Lord had sent him to pursue. If that pleased God, then can it please God to see lukewarm, careless, thoughtless men and women who say they follow him, but who live at a poor dying rate? Oh, be rid of this hypocrisy. Ask first for singleness of soul and devotedness of purpose, and when this is given you, then shall there come days of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Then shall sinners be converted, and Christ shall see the travail of his soul. But for all this, we want the influence of the Holy Spirit, for without that we shall never give our whole hearts up to the sacred mission of winning souls for Christ. What can we say to these things? How do we respond to such a charge? I think if we're honest, we have to say, I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I wish to be, I am not what I will be, and I have grounds for repenting. I need to remember the spirit with which Christ pursued his father's business and to remember that having been called into his kingdom and glory, having been by the grace of God made a, a true child of the living God, then I am to be like the, the only begotten son in my whole soul devotion to God and to his honour. Let us then consider the character of Christ let us look into his face and muse upon his being and his doing until the fire burns in our own souls. And then, righteously, properly, earnestly, eagerly, with the full range of our humanity, every element of our redeemed being poured out for him, with our eyes weeping and our souls singing and our grief and our righteous indignation and our pity and our uh, every faculty of our being engaged that we may serve the God who saves and that we may see first of all in seeking after Christ and then in serving for Christ the glory of God in the world. I hope you'll be back to listen to more next week. Sermon 309 is our next sermon. That's full redemption uh, it's a fascinating one. The text is Exodus 10:26. There shall not a hoof be left behind. And you might say, how on earth is anybody going to preach a sermon on that? Well, come back, God willing, and you'll hear on that occasion. But for now, thank you for being with us. Thank you for listening. And may God truly bless our hearts as we consider him who gave his all for us. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>